All right, grab your Bible, turn to the book of Colossians. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you this morning. It's always good to be together to worship. Amen? Amen. Uh, we were going to be in Colossians. A while back, a, a friend taught me a, a, a memory tool. I can't remember who taught me it, but uh, to find Colossians, if you have any trouble, many of you use your phone and you cheat, but if you have like a physical Bible still, God eats popcorn constantly. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that's stuck in my head when I'm trying to find one. I think about God eating popcorn. It's a strange experience. Um, we're kicking off a new series today, and we're going to look at this, this, this letter that was written, uh, one chapter at a time. And, and our goal is to learn from Paul what, what did God speak through Paul to the church in Colossae, but also... What are the things that need to be applied today? Well, what is the Spirit saying to us as we read through this letter? And if you're newer to the Scriptures, Colossians is a part of a group of writings known as the Epistles, and these were the earliest followers of Jesus that were writing uh, these, these letters to early communities of faith, and they cover a lot of different things. A lot of these letters are dealing with very specific issues that are happening in local congregations. Some of them have kind of a broader reach, but um, Colossians is a good example. It's written uh, for a very specific reason, because there are things that are happening in the church that Paul's going to do some coaching and some, some training and some help, offer some help to them. And so uh, to understand kind of what these things are and what Paul's trying to get across, we have to know what was going on in the time. We have to know a little bit of the background to kind of frame why is he writing what he's writing. So First, the author, I just said it, is Paul. And Paul's an interesting guy. If you know anything about Paul, we, we meet him as Saul in the scriptures. And he's this zealous Pharisee, this religious kind of ruler, leader, that was incredibly passionate about protecting the way of God. And, and we find him uh, actually going out and hunting Christians down, imprisoning them and killing them for God. That's how we meet Saul. And then Saul encounters Jesus, and his life is, is changed. And all of that passion and all that zealous zeal, that zeal that he had for serving the Lord was turned into promoting and spreading the good news of who Jesus was. So he went from the biggest opponent to the spread of Christianity to being the biggest proponent of Christianity. And just to give you a visual of what it looked like, here's a, a map of his journeys. It's estimated that Paul traveled upwards of 10,000 miles on foot to carry the good news of Jesus to the world that he knew. Isn't that amazing? When's the last time you walked like two miles on foot? <laughs> 10,000 miles. 10,000 miles because he was filled with the good news of who Jesus was and he wanted everybody to know and in many of the cities that Paul would visit, he'd preach the good news. People would come to faith in Jesus. And then he would begin to organize them and say, well, here's what it looks like to live as a community of faith, trusting Jesus as Lord and King of your life. Uh, now, Colossae, it actually wasn't planted by Paul. Uh, many think that it was planted out of Ephesus. And so it was kind of like a grandchild church because Paul planted Ephesus. So you can see Colossae as a grandchild church to Paul. And so he didn't have, he maybe knew some people at this church, but likely he didn't know very many of them personally, but he cared about them deeply because they were followers of Jesus and they were his family. 
Uh, the letter's written around six, the 60 ADs, and so this church is still pretty new. It's in the early stages of development and formation. We've got another map to show you where it is. It's modern-day Turkey. Um, you can see over on the west there, Ephesus, on the top of that map, is over on the coast. So this church was planted out of Ephesus. And in the history of this town, it was a thriving town because it's located on this trade route. And they, they, uh, they specialized in manufacturing a certain colored wool. It was popular at the time, kind of like clothes become popular, and then in 30 years they become popular again. You know what I'm saying? So they, they were popular, and then it went out of style. And so this, this town actually was incredibly prominent, and then all the other cities grew around it, and it kind of lost its prominence and kind of faded in the background. And so when Paul writes a letter to them, this is a small town. This is a small group of people that are trying to follow Jesus together, and they're brand new in their faith. And, and just like anything, the early stages of development and formation are at the same time the most formative and the most vulnerable. This is true. Think about your development as a human. When you're a baby, when you're two or three, five, six, seven, those are the most formative years of your life, but you're also the most vulnerable. This is true in business. When you start a business, at the beginning of your business, it's, it's the most formative time of your business, and it's also the time where you're the most vulnerable. It's true in agriculture, anything. That's kind of how it works. And that's true with the church, too. So the church is at the very beginning of, of forming. So it's incredible. there's incredible things going on as the church of Jesus is being shaped, but it's also vulnerable. And, and Paul knew this. As he's writing the church, he's writing from prison, and he's, he's writing to them to encourage them because he hears that there's a lot of things, good things going on in the church, but he also has some concerns. And the scriptures talk about Paul as like a spiritual father. And so he, he writes to this church as a spiritual father, caring for what's happening there and concerned that they might get off track if they don't course correct. That's why he writes it. So this brings us to chapter one. Let's read this together, starting in verse, verse one. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, when you write a letter today or an email, uh, you, you sign it like this. It's just at the end, right? When you sign something, it's at the end of the letter. Back then, you would actually sign it at the beginning so that the person receiving it would know this is who it's from and this is why they're writing it. So he, he addresses them that way. Verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of all the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So in the, in the opening verses, these, these first six verses here, Paul's just pouring on encouragement. <laughs> 
He's saying, listen, I, I'm praying for you. I'm excited for you. The grace of God is producing fruit in your community. This is amazing stuff that I'm hearing that's going on. It's just, he's, he's loving on them. He's encouraging them. And, and there's so much that we can learn from the way Paul writes in his letters, practically speaking. Because whenever you're going to offer somebody feedback, or maybe correction, isn't it helpful to start with encouragement on, on what's good, the things that are good that are going on? It, it kind of establishes a relational connection with somebody before you say, actually, this is some things you need to change in your life. And that's very, very important. Uh, I'm fascinated by this currently because I'm reading a, a number of books about uh, they're called neurotheologians. They're guys who study brain science, but also love God and are study the Bible. And they're, they're finding out incredibly fascinating things about our brains that the Bible has actually taught all along, but they're catching up, right? And, they, and they've discovered that our brain kind of functions in two hemispheres, right? One side is kind of relational, and the other side is more logistic, like it works out details, and there's a way that our brain processes information. In fact, it works through one side first and then works over to the logistics side. So we are relational first, and then we work out disciplines and what we do next. We're relational beings. And this is actually subconscious. It's called the fast track of your brain. So this goes on without you thinking about it. So let me give you an example. Um, when I go home today, well, my family's here, uh, but let's say they weren't here, and after church today, I, I went home and I walked in the door. There is something happening in my brain that's already telling me, this is a safe place, these are your people, you're loved here, you can connect with them. That happens without me thinking, this is a safe place, <laughs> these are my people, it just happens. Now, if I was to walk in my door after church today and there was somebody I didn't know sitting in my, in my lazy boy, <laughs> my brain, before I think about it, is going, Danger, danger, danger. Who is this person? Are they safe? Can you connect with them? That's how the brain works. Before you even process the information, your brain is telling you this is safe or not. It's amazing. It's incredible. So when we have a secure attachment, when we connect with somebody relationally, we actually can receive what they have to say. We receive it much better than if we are, are what they call enemy mode. We're in enemy mode towards somebody where we can't receive what they have to say. And this is why trauma experiences in the early stages of life are so harmful to us as human beings because it damages this ability to connect, to securely connect with other human beings. And so we actually don't trust. We don't believe that people are for our good. And we kind of keep people at arm's distance because of pain that we've, we've suffered. Now, I'll bring it back to the text. Paul, he's got no access to brain technology when he's writing this. Um, but what's amazing to me is he writes as if he does. Like, potentially, something's happening within Paul where there's something supernatural that is actually leading his life. Like, maybe the Spirit of God is, like, guiding Paul in his words and his actions. That's just, I mean, that may be what's happening here. He's, he's writing about things that he doesn't even comprehend completely because he's being led by the Spirit. Now, if you're a parent or a leader, uh, an employer, or maybe you're just a friend of somebody, learn from Paul <laughs> in the way he talks to people. 
and the way he addresses issues, because it'll actually help you in all of those types of relationships. This continues, verse 9. He says, And so from the day we've heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So again, he's pouring on more, but he's making it clear to the church, listen, I'm writing this to you because I care about you and I I care about what God is doing in your community and I I care that you are flourishing in his grace and I I care that you're experiencing the love of God through one another. I I care about these things and I'm praying that it it not only happens but it increases in your community. That, That grace would abound even more in your community. And then he reminds them of what they've been rescued from and the forgiveness that they now live in, that they were rescued from a domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, that that there is grace on their life. He's talking to them about their identity as believers. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. Anybody need a reminder sometimes of who you are in Jesus, of what's true about who you are? This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, don't forget this. Remember who you are. Remember what's been done on your behalf. Remember the grace that's been given to you. Remember the forgiveness that's been given to you. Walk in that. Don't forget that. You're a new creation. This is, this is foundational for us as followers of Jesus to know that, that we're loved, we're forgiven. There is grace that's available. It is true back then, it's true today that We've been taken from a domain of darkness and we've been placed in the kingdom of light, the the kingdom of heaven. We we walk with Jesus today. That's good news we need to hold on to. And being confused about this, about that reality, can lead us into all kinds of weird things and weird beliefs. And this is why Paul focuses so much attention on in his letters, this foundational truth about who we are as followers of Jesus so important. It's, it's why you don't buy a house. Don't first check in the foundation, right? Maybe you've, maybe you've done, maybe you haven't checked the foundation and you bought a house and you realize this was not a good idea. Paul spends a significant amount of time pointing to the foundation, Jesus, and what Jesus has accomplished. And he keeps coming back to it in all of his letters. As we continue, he's going to start talking about who Jesus is. And this is a great part of the letter. Verse 15. Let's continue. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you notice a word that's repeated over and over again in that? That stand out to anybody? All, everything. It's like if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to hit you again and again and again. You didn't get it, I'm going to hit you again. In Jesus, all things are being held together. He's before all things. He's at the beginning, he's at the end. He, you, need to, you need to get this. <laughs> Paul made sure to repeat it over and over and over again. He's got this incredibly high view of Jesus, which you'd hope. He, he actually sees Jesus for who he is. Lord, sovereign, king, holding all things. Again, when we get this wrong, on a practical sense in our lives, we get a lot of stuff wrong. When we forget that he's the beginning and the end, when we forget that he holds all things, when we forget that our lives are in his hands, we can get so caught up in other things and get distracted and move away from the good news of God's presence with us. He holds us. Paul, Paul drills into this because he's combating a problem that was beginning to work its way into the church. And it's still a problem that creeps its way into the church today. It's the issue of adding things to the gospel. We add things to the gospel. A couple weeks ago, I defined the gospel as the good news of Jesus, that Jesus himself was good news. And we read from Luke 4 that he came to set the captives free and release the oppressed and bring the favor of the Lord. And, and it was only Jesus that could offer forgiveness and grace. Only Jesus could set the captives free. He himself was the good news. And when Paul showed up in Colossae originally, he preached the good news. And it says in the beginning of this chapter that they received it in faith. So they received the gospel. They received the good news. But over time... Time ticked by and things started to get a little bit distorted. And this, this was primarily due to the rise of something called Gnosticism. Maybe you're familiar with this term. Uh, if you want to Google it, you can later. I'll make fun of that later as well. Uh, <laughs> but here's the general idea with Gnosticism. It, Gnosticism believed that there was the, kind of the, the earthly things, the flesh, the things that were physical and then spiritual things. And all the flesh and physical things are bad, and all the spiritual stuff is good, and the goal in life is to leave the flesh and to attain spiritual realities. Leave all this behind. This is evil. This is ugly. This is not good. We need special knowledge. We need special revelation. We need special visions. We need special connections with angels. We'll get to that next week. We need to be enlightened spiritually. I think one of our greatest struggles as human beings is that we just want to have a little say in the story. Like the gospel is, is such good news that our brains say, yeah, let's take the gospel, but let's just add a little something else to it because we got to have a, some say in it. Like my redemption, my salvation, like my healing, like I have to be somewhat responsible for that. It can't just all be Jesus. So, so, so maybe, maybe it, through my learning and through my understanding and through my accomplishments and my serving, then, then maybe, maybe God will receive me and he'll be pleased with me. We add things and it distorts the gospel. 
Think about this before Jesus came, the, the Pharisees. What were they doing? They added law upon law upon law upon law upon law upon law, which they thought, we're doing God a favor here. We're helping protect God. God never really asked for that. And in fact, they were actually separating themselves from God by creating all these laws. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you're actually putting such a heavy burden around people's necks that you're crushing them. And you're not even following the laws that you're saying are important. So this happened before Jesus. Now in class A, here's how it impacted the church. The focus was no longer on the supremacy of Jesus and his completed work and his power by his spirit to work things out. The focus turned more towards what spiritual enlightenment you could receive, what ladder you could climb, what experience you could have, what higher knowledge you could attain, which led in the church to some believing, well, I have attained spiritual enlightenment and I am holy and I'm righteous. And then you had over on this side people going, I can't do that for some reason. I don't have these special revelations and experiences, so I guess maybe I don't get it or I'm not good enough. See how that creates division? Doesn't this stuff kind of still happen in the church today? It's really sad. It's really sad. To face these distortions, Paul elevates Jesus. <laughs> says, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished, what he offers, what he calls you to. Jesus is, is God fully manifested. He is redemption. So let me make this a little personal and then um, we'll see if I can make it uncomfortable for you too. Um, I've honestly been pretty wrecked in studying Colossians. In a good way. Like, sometimes God wrecks you and it's a good thing. But I, I've, I've been convicted and challenged as I'm reading Colossians because I'm pretty guilty of a lot of things Paul is addressing in the book of Colossians. There's something inside of me, and it's a part of who I am, so there's good in it that God is working through. But there's something inside of me that seeks to understand. Like, if I love to learn. If you know me, like... I just devour books. I devour information. I love to go, I love to just learn from other people. And I, and if that goes unchecked, then my understanding is the thing that rescues me or delivers me or guides me, not Jesus and the spirit of God. And that's dangerous. That's what Paul's talking about. It's this pursuit of like special understanding and special information and special knowledge versus just accepting the finished work of Jesus and being led daily by his spirit. It's so easy to get just enough off course. Now, you may be able to think of something in your life, um, something that you've convinced yourself, if I just had this, then my life would be awesome. If I just had this, I'm talking about your life of faith. If I just had this in my life with God, then it would be the best. I would have hope. I would have peace. This could be, maybe this is related to money. Maybe this is related to relationships. Maybe this is related to position. If I just had this thing, 
then I'd be walking in the fullness of what God has for me. And Paul says, the fullness of what God has for you is Jesus. He, He is everything. He offers everything. And and most of those things I just described, they're vain pursuits. We think they're going to bring us hope and peace, but they actually end up stressing us out more. (laughs) They create more problems in our lives. Okay, here's where I'm going to make fun of Google. I do wonder today, (laughs) I do wonder today if information has become a god in some, some way. Because when we run into something that's difficult in our life, what do you do? Google it. We're fine. We got Google. Or YouTube. Like, it's totally good. My, my washing machine broke. YouTube that sucker. Save some money. I'll fix it myself. Create 10 more problems. But we tried. Like, the things that we, the things that we run into. How many of you Google when you get sick? Like, what do you do? Google it. Then you're like, oh, I hope I don't got that. So it's, it's almost like we've, we've turned this relationship with God into like, okay, I'm actually okay because Google is there and can answer any questions I have versus bringing my heart before the Lord and saying, what do you have to say about what I'm facing? It's subtle, but see how that can be a problem? Now, I'm not against Google. I love Google. It's great. It's a gift, but it's not God. What are the things that we place in our life that we actually lift up in our life to be our hope and our salvation, our strength and our security that are not Jesus? That's the question. Watch what Paul does next. This is where he grounds the church. Uh, Verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who does that? Okay. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he basically tells them, hey, hey, Colossae, let's just apply it. Hey, church. Hey, remember, um, maybe you've forgotten, but Jesus didn't save you because you were awesome. You, you like, needed to be saved. You were actually alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Remember what you brought to the table. (laughs) It's anchoring. I mean, he's anchoring them. He, He encouraged them like crazy, but now he's saying... Don't forget the gospel. God brought everything to the story. What you brought is surrender to the gospel, to the good news. You brought a heart that was open to receive. Now, don't get stuck there. Don't don't dwell in like I'm an evil person. No, he wants you to walk in your new identity as a child of God, an heir to the kingdom. But you're not great. You and I are not great because of what we have to offer. We have everything because of what Jesus offered us. That's the, that's the good news. Paul, again, he's elevating the supremacy of Jesus, and he's kind of lowering 
all of the pursuits that maybe this church and maybe churches from that point to this point in history have tried to do, elevating spiritual attainment or knowledge or understanding or works. He's like lowering that down and he's saying, you want to know what you need to lift up? Jesus. I love what Everett Harrison, a commentary says. He says, he took the initiative without waiting for men to come halfway. It is God who acts in reconciliation. It is man who is reconciled. God did the work. We're recipients of that. And any movement away from this good news is a movement into discord and division and confusion. Keep it simple. As he closes this chapter, he, he kind of puts a rubber stamp on it by sharing his own testimony and what's going on in his life. Verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, which is a weird thing to a church that is saying, we're trying to actually get away from suffering. We're trying to elevate ourselves out of the flesh and bad things. Paul says, hey, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So to a people that maybe had gotten confused and were trying to climb whatever ladders they were climbing, Paul, from prison, remember, <laughs> suffering in the flesh, says, I rejoice in my sufferings because if, if suffering, if me suffering promotes the good news of Jesus, then bring it on. doesn't matter. Next week, we're going to look more at uh, some of the complications that this church had in chapter 2. Uh, but here's the application. Hopefully you've already picked it up from this week. Elevate Jesus in your life. Elevate Jesus. We tend, our natural proclivity is to elevate problems and challenges and issues and failures. And, or on the other side, we elevate our strengths and our abilities and our passions. And one leads to like discouragement and depression and fear and uncertainty. And the other leads to pride and arrogance. As followers of Jesus, we elevate Jesus. We lift up Jesus. We set our minds on Jesus, on the ways of Jesus, on the words of Jesus, on the life of Jesus. We, we truly want to be his disciples. We want, to, we want our lives to come into alignment with who he is and how he behaved and how he treated people, how he loved people. That's what we want to give our lives to. Elevate Jesus in your life. We're not trying to escape the flesh or escape suffering. In fact, if we're following Jesus, what did Jesus do? He actually entered into the darkest places. He entered into suffering. He entered into pain. And he brought redemption. So as his people, carrying the good news of Jesus, we move towards those who are hurting. We move towards those who are in need. 
We, we move into places that are dark because it's in the dark that people need light. They need Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and things are really heavy for you, like things are dark. It's Jesus that you need. And he loves you. He's well aware of what's going on in your life. In fact, he knows better what's going on in your life than you do. And he's calling you to himself because he's the good shepherd. <laughs> he's the one who's going to lead you to beside still waters and lay you down when you need to rest and feed you and care for your needs because he knows you better than you know yourself. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been on the outskirts of the story and you've kind of watched and lived your faith through somebody else's faith. Today's a good day because Jesus is saying, you can trust me. If you're ready to be, to, uh, if you're ready to be done kind of carrying your life on your terms, I mean, you can keep doing that, but how's that working out for you? He's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, because he can give you rest. Worship team, you can join me as we close in communion. You can get your uh, cups out. As I was processing this part of the service at the beginning of this week, I realized how many times um, I use the phrase, let's take communion together. And even that language is a little bit off because communion, this is something we receive. Even my language was like, get it, get it. <laughs> get that. This is a gift. And my mind actually went back to being a kid in the Free Methodist Church and my pastor at the end of the service when he offered communion, he'd say, uh, the gifts of God for the people of God. Won't you come? And we would walk up and we would receive. So today, we, we take this white wafer that represents the body and this cup that represents the blood and we remember something that Jesus did. He laid his life down for us. We have grace today because of his action, not ours. And we need to be reminded of this all the time. And, and maybe today we just need to get back to the foot of the cross and remember the story that we're a part of. And maybe in that place, the Lord is going to fill us with his spirit again, empower us to be his in this world. His body was broken for you. And I mean that individually. He loves you. He came for you. His body was broken for you. Let's take the bread together. His blood that was poured out on the cross, we don't have forgiveness, we don't have redemption without that. He became the perfect sacrifice for us. This is good news today, friends. Let's take the cup together. <clears throat>